Turn with me this morning to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. We're making our way through this letter slowly but surely. Um, and uh, I think it's all good. The Lord is blessing us. Let's begin reading with verse 4. Peter writes, Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. We're coming to this passage in, cha- in verse 4 of chapter 2 this week in the context still of what we've seen previously. And in the last passage that we considered last Sunday, Peter used an analogy for the life of a Christian. And it was that analogy of babies and milk. He gave us the command in verse 2. He said, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. No child that I've ever seen has ever politely asked for his bottle when he's hungry. They scream, they cry, they think they're going to die if they don't have that milk right away. And what Peter writes to us is that in the same way as a baby desires, longs for, craves the pure milk of the word. So we as Christians ought to have such a longing, such a desire, such a need for the word of God. And so he moves on in verse 4 and 5 to another analogy. He goes from speaking of babies and milk to the analogy of building a house. You could say he moves from the nursery to the construction site. He says in verse 5, You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house. You're being built up a spiritual house. We've gone from growing up. To building up. You're being built up a spiritual house. Now notice the passive use of that verb in verse 5. He says you are being built up. Who is it that is building up God's church? Is it you? Is it me? Certainly not. I'm glad that pressure is not on me. If we build the church, what's going to happen to it? It certainly will not stand. It will have no eternal value if we are the ones doing the building up. You are not building up. It's not your job to build God's church. And let's just be honest, you can't. You couldn't build a God-pleasing church in your own effort if you wanted to. 
Any church that's built on the effort of human beings, any church that's built on the personality of a preacher, any church that's built on attractionalism or entertainment, quite frankly, will not stand. It won't. It can't. So you aren't building the church. You aren't even building yourself up as a Christian in any meaningful way. No, that verb is passive. You are being built up. This church is being built up. God's church across the world is being built up. Logical question, by whom? In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus asked His disciples, Who do you say that I am? None other than Peter spoke up and he said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you, Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Listen, if the church will stand, if the church will not be overthrown, if the gates of hell itself will not prevail over the church, then the church must be, must be built by God Himself. God builds the church on the Lord Jesus Christ. The true church is being built up. Peter says, you are being built up. He tells these Christians and to us. And he actually goes to show in this passage the thing that Jesus said in Matthew 16. That is, that the church is built on none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He said in verse 4, coming to him... As to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. He refers to Jesus as a living stone. Now that's not usually how we think of stones. We might say that something is stone dead or stone cold. But I've never heard anybody say stone alive. Or stone living. But he uses that adjective. He says that Jesus is the living stone because that's exactly what Jesus is. He is living. We're coming up on Easter, but certainly that's not the only day of the year that we acknowledge and recognize the fact that our Lord is living. Jesus is today alive. As we've been looking on Wednesdays at the book of Acts, and if you don't come on Wednesdays, I'd encourage you to come on Wednesdays. Uh, but we've been working through the book of Acts a section at a time, and we've read some of Peter's sermons. Seems like every chapter he preaches a new sermon. And what's one thing that he always includes? It's an essential part of his message Jesus is alive. In Acts chapter 2, his very first sermon, the first sermon in the history of the Christian church, Peter said, this Jesus God has raised up, of whom we are all witnesses. Jesus is alive and we've seen Him. The very next chapter, 
Peter and John went to the temple. They healed a man who had been lame since birth. He gets up. He's jumping around. He's praising God. People recognize him and start to gather around wondering what's going on. And Peter, being a good preacher, takes advantage of the crowd that's gathering. And he starts to preach. And he says to them, You denied the Holy One. And the just. You asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You killed the prince of life. Whom God raised from the dead. Of which we are witnesses. Jesus is alive and we've seen him. The very next chapter. Acts chapter 4. The religious leaders, the authorities are questioning him by about what, or by what authority he had healed the man. And Peter, just as bold as ever, says, Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you whole. Every man that was healed by the apostles in the New Testament, every person who has ever been saved, you who have been born again, have been born again. You have been brought to life because Jesus himself is Alive. He is living even today. Peter knew the importance of the reality that Jesus is alive. He says he's a living stone. That Sunday morning that Jesus rose from the dead is so important. It meant so much to those early Christians. It means so much to us today that people, that Christians started gathering together for worship and for prayer and to give tithes and offerings. And to encourage one another and to pray and to read scripture. And they started doing it, not on the Sabbath day, but they met and celebrated and remembered the resurrection of the Lord Jesus every single Sunday. You know why we're here this morning, gathered on a Sunday morning to worship God? Because we're here to celebrate and remember that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. If you're waiting till the, April the 17th to recognize and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you're re you really haven't been changed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're gathered here every Sunday because Jesus is alive. He is the living stone. That's why he calls him the living stone, but why does he call him the living stone? <laughs> because... Peter reminds us that he is the chief cornerstone. He quotes the Old Testament in verse 6. He says, therefore, it's also contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone. Elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Now, you think of the architecture in Peter's day. The cornerstone was the stone on which the foundation was set. Now, Ed... I know that you've never messed up a foundation, have you? Never once. But if you were to mess up a foundation, does that just affect the foundation? Absolutely not. You mess up a foundation, you've messed up the whole house. That foundation must be square. It must be in line. The cornerstone made sure that everything was in its proper place. Scripture refers to the foundation of our faith as the words of the apostles and the prophets. That is, the foundation of our faith is the Word of God. 
And that foundation is set on, it's in line with, it is squared by the chief cornerstone, and that is Jesus. And let me just say this in passing, if your life is built on any foundation other than the Word of God, if your life is built on anything other than the chief cornerstone, our Lord Jesus Christ, your house will fall. But Peter says if you come to Him, if you believe on Him, he says he who believes on Him will by no means be put to shame. Your house will stand. Your life will mean something. If you build it on the Lord Jesus Christ. He reminds us that Jesus wasn't universally accepted as the chief cornerstone though. He wasn't universally accepted as this living stone. And he shows the contrast between those who reject him and those who accept him. In verse 4 there he says, Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men. Surely Jesus was rejected indeed by men. No one has ever been rejected to the degree that Jesus was rejected. Hated, despised, beaten, mocked, spit on, crucified. In a manner that no man had ever experienced. Peter said it in those early sermons. You put God's Son to death. You killed the Prince of Life. Those Jews rejected Jesus. He quoted this same verse from verse 7 to the religious leaders. He said, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. You're the builders. You're the ones in charge. You're supposed to know what to do. Leading the people. But the one who came as the chief cornerstone, the one on whom you should have built your faith, you rejected him. Whereas he should have, been reject, or should have been accepted as the chief cornerstone, he was rejected. He was considered nothing more than a rock that you trip over. A nuisance in the way. He said in verse 8, he calls him a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. To them, he wasn't a cornerstone to be built on. He was just a rock in the way. But verse 4 doesn't just say that he was rejected by men. He says, coming to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. And that scripture he quoted a moment ago, he calls him elect, precious. At Jesus' baptism, the voice of God was audibly heard from heaven. And what did he say? He said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus, or Jesus is loved, chosen, and valued by the Father. Now think of a time when you've been proudest of your own son or daughter. What did that feel like to you? The one experiencing the joy, the pride. How precious were they to you in that moment? Now, God is different from us. He is holy. He is separate. Our emotions are contaminated by sin. He is apart from sin. It's not exactly the same. But should we think that the value that God places on His Son, the love that God has for His Son, the joy that is brought to Him by His Son, is anything less than what we experience in our own children? No. 
Jesus is chosen by God and precious. He was rejected indeed by men, but to his Father in heaven, he is chosen. He is precious. This is the Jesus on whom the church is built. Now, what does that have to do with you? Verse 5, he says, you also as living stones. He calls Jesus the living stone. Rejected by men, chosen by God, precious. Now, you also. Living stones. Your identity as a Christian is wrapped up in Jesus. He is the Son of God and through Him we come to be known as sons of God. He is the living stone. And our identity is so closely tied to His that we are known by God as living stones. He was rejected by men. And surely if we follow Him faithfully, we too will be rejected by men. Paul promised Timothy, he said, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. There's your encouragement for the morning. Surely you will be rejected by men if you follow Jesus. Remember the context that Peter's writing in. These Christians have been scattered. They've been kicked out of their homes, even their own towns. Surely Christians who follow will be rejected. But not only do we identify with Jesus in being rejected, but what's true of His election and His value is also true of you, His follower. He is chosen by God, and because of Him, you too have been chosen by God. He is precious in the sight of God, and that means that you as a Christian being found in Him, in God's sight, are Precious, valuable to your Creator. You are stones that have been made alive in Christ. You think about stones being used to build a house. You were dug out of the pit. You've been cleaned. You are being shaped and fashioned by God into the the, the form that He has for you, the design that He has for you, so that you can be used in your proper place for the building of His house. I'm happy to be a stone in the wall in God's house. He says it's a spiritual house in verse 5. The church, you know, I hope, is not a building. That's what unbelievers think the church is. It's a place you go to. It's got an address. We use that kind of language inadvertently. We say, well, did you go to church this morning? How was church this morning? Did you enjoy going to church? God's house is not made of brick and mortar. God's house is not a physical structure. God's house does not have an address. God's house is God's people. His house is a spiritual house. 
Let me just say that you can't separate the life of a Christian from the life of the church. You get people who say, well, I love Jesus and I'm a Christian and I follow Jesus, but I'm not really crazy about the church. You know, there might be things that you can criticize about the church institutionally. There might be people in the church that you don't care for. The preacher might not be all that good. But you cannot separate the life of a Christian from the life of the church. Why? Because the Christian is the church. Now what good is a stone laid out in the middle of the parking lot? What's, what good is one rock on the ground on its own? It's next to useless. But you take that stone and you let God clean it. You let Him shape it. You let Him build something with other stones. And it can be something magnificent. Something valuable. He also says we're being built up into a holy priesthood. He says you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house. A holy priesthood. To offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now I want to spend and I'm planning on spending more time time on this idea of priesthood next week. Teaser, come back. But let me just say this today. One of the jobs of the Old Testament priest was to take the sacrifices that were brought by the people and offer them to God in their behalf. One of the jobs of the priest was to offer sacrifice to God. And that's why Peter uses that last phrase in verse 5. He says, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are not being built up into a spiritual house just to give God something to look at. You're not being built up into God's house just so He can say He did it. God didn't save you. He didn't make you His child just so you could coast on through life until you get to heaven. He saved you. He's building you up into His spiritual house for a purpose. And what's that purpose? Worship and sacrifice. Let me be clear. We are not making sacrifices to earn our place with God. Jesus did that. He went to the cross. He suffered. He bled. He died. He took the punishment for your sins as the sacrifice for your sins. He took your place so that you could be made right with God. You could never earn God's favor. You could never offer enough to Him. You could never do enough to please Him to outweigh your sin and get you a place in heaven. You can't. Jesus did it for you. He is your sacrifice. So we're not making sacrifices to earn our place with God. Payment for sin has been made. All who repent of their sins and put their trust in the Lord Jesus have been forgiven, born again. But now, having been born again, full of gratitude to God for what He's done for us in saving us, 
being built up into His house, what do we do? We offer sacrifices of worship. The New Testament speaks of a few ways that Christians offer sacrifices to God. I'll just give you three. One, the New Testament speaks of a sacrifice of praise. Hebrews 13.15 says, Therefore by Him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name. Do you think of giving praise to God as offering a sacrifice to Him? That will change the way that you come to church. That will, come, that will change the way that you come to gather with God's people for worship. Because too many people have this idea that I come to church, the, the musicians better have practiced than have it all together this morning because when I stand up and when I sing, I want to feel something. I want to be blessed when I come to church. When I offer my praise, it needs to be good for me. Maybe you wouldn't say it like that. But we know what you mean. <laughs> because we've all been there. But when you gather with God's people for worship, the praise that comes from your lips, the thanksgiving that comes from your mouth, is not for you. You don't come to church just for you. You don't sing so that you can feel good. We're here to offer a sacrifice of praise to God. Let me just be honest. It doesn't matter whether you feel like it or not when you come. If the song we're singing is true, if the prayer that's being voiced is true, you can say amen, you can participate, because God is worth it. God deserves your praise. Church isn't just for you. Do you benefit? Yes. Are you frequently blessed? Yes. If you come with the attitude that you're here to give praise as a sacrifice to God. And that's not a sacrifice that you can just give on Sundays. You give thanks to God. You can give praise to God every single day of your life. In fact, I encourage you to find time every day to give praise to God. So there's a sacrifice of praise. Second, there's a sacrifice of giving. Everybody start holding your wallets a little bit tighter. The preacher's going to talk about money. You can come to this from different passages, but Philippians 4 came to my mind this week. Paul said, now you Philippians, in his letter, he said, Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. I lost my verse. I'm sorry. Give me a moment. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you. And listen how he describes their gifts. He says, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice. 
pleasing to God. Paul, writing to the Philippians about the monetary gift that they had sent to him in his need, called it a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice. Pleasing not just to Paul, but to God. Do you give sacrificially to the work of God? The Scripture says that God loves a cheerful giver. Now some guys say, get up at the pulpit and say, well, if you can't give and be happy about it, don't give at all. Now I'm going to say keep giving until you're happy about it, okay? Be obedient <laughs> and ask God to give you joy in it. Yeah, I remember, even whenever I was a kid, I don't know how many of you parents did an allowance with your kids where, you know, they did certain chores and then they, you know, got a little bit of money uh, every, you know, week or couple of weeks or once a month, whatever. I don't remember how frequently I got it, but I remember I got $5 and that was big money, right? $5 to a kid is big money. But when they gave me $5, they didn't give me a $5 bill. My parents gave me four ones and four quarters. Why? Because they wanted to train me, even as a child, to take 50 cents out of my $5, carry it to Sunday school with me, and put it in the offering. And you know what? It's stuck. Here I am, an adult, and I take a predetermined amount of our money. It's none of your business how much I give. That Kelby and I have prayed about and decided. And when we get paid, while we're setting aside money for our bills at the beginning of the month, not to see what's left at the end, but while we're setting aside money for our bills, one of the first things we set aside is whatever money we have, we have determined we're going to give to God's work in the church. Do you give to the work of God? Do you give joyfully, sacrificially, we just plug Annie Armstrong here while we're at it. We're collecting now for our North American missions offering between now and Easter. And we don't take away from our regular giving that we give to the church and just shift it over to the offering, okay? We're going to keep giving to the offering. But another thing we need to pray about is what would the Lord have us give in addition to that to the work of missions? Some of you need to be praying that prayer. Some of you right now, while I'm saying this, need to reach in the pew in front of you, take one of those envelopes, stick it in your Bible, take it home, and pray over it. And seek the Lord on what He'd have you give. Preacher's meddling. Moving on. Number three. A sacrifice of service. Paul told the Romans, he said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Your reasonable service. I'll just go ahead and tell you, the church can always, need, can always use more workers. There is always work to be done. Where are you serving? What's your thing? What's the gifting that God has given you and how are you putting it to work in His church?
We always think about the parable of the talents. And we have to remember that a talent is money. It's just what they called the coins that they had. But it applies implications for our God-given abilities. The master gave the servants their talents. He gave one five, one, uh, or one ten, one five, and one one. And he left. And he came back and one of the servants had doubled it. The next servant had doubled what he had been given. He had used what the master had given him. And then the third one, the one who only had one talent, he said, here's your one talent back. Um, I didn't really do anything with it. I just dug a hole in the ground and put it in there so I wouldn't lose it. And he said, you wicked servant. How are you using the talents, the giftings that God has given you for His service? God is building you up into His house that you may offer sacrifice. Think of it this way, using Peter's words. You are being built up to offer up. You're being built up to offer up. You're being built up as God's people into God's house to offer up yourself as a sacrifice to Him. You're being built up into God's house to offer up a sacrifice of praise. You're being built up into God's house to offer up your resources. You're being built up into God's house to offer up your service. You're being built up to offer up. So let me ask, are you part of God's spiritual house? Are you one of His living stones? Saying it simply, are you a Christian? Have you been born again? Have you repented of your sins, come to God for mercy, and placed your faith in Jesus Christ? If not, I urge you, do that today. Come to Him, the living stone, the cornerstone on which God will build your life. Don't reject Him. Don't stumble over Him. Don't let Him just be in your way. Surrender to Him. Submit yourself to Him. And you who have been born again, are you living as part of God's house? Are you trying to go it alone as a Christian? There is no such thing as lone wolf Christianity. You need the church. And guess what? The church needs you. Some of you maybe need to recommit yourself to the Lord by recommitting yourself to being part of this local church. Not just as a Sunday morning attendee either, but for you, the church needs to become the context in which you offer sacrifices to God. Whether that's just changing the attitude initially about how you come to worship. You come with a focus on God and not a focus on what you get. You come to offer your resources, whatever God has given you that you can give to support His work. To offer yourself up for service. To be used by God in His church for His work.
Whatever step it is that you need to take today, take it now. Start with a prayer. Confess your sin. Confess your failure to God. Thank Him for the mercy that He's shown you through Jesus. And out of gratitude for Jesus, commit yourself to Him in whatever way He's brought to your mind this morning. Would you bow with me as we pray as they come for a song? Father, thank You for Your Word. Sometimes... We get really practical. But we need it. We need to be reminded who we're here for. Not for ourselves, but to offer up sacrifice to you. The God who loved us and saved us. And so, Lord, as this congregation now reflects on your word and prays, Bring to our minds those things of which we need to repent. Show us that area we need to be actively practicing obedience. And change our hearts. Change our focus from ourselves and what we want, our own traditions, our own desires, the way we want things done, and turn that focus to you and what we need to do for your service as your people. And if someone here doesn't know you, Lord, may they not look to serve and sacrifice and work their way to you, but may they see their helpless state and fall before you for mercy. And I pray that they would be saved. In Jesus' name, amen.